Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keen and Michael McKee, and the opening bell brought to you by SEI. Recognized as a fintech pioneer, SEI continues its legacy of innovation by helping asset managers to compete in a changing world. Explore SEI's next-gen ideas at SEIC.com slash IMS. Stocks are higher at the open. The S&P 500 is up a quarter percent, or five points, to 2045. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up two tenths percent, or 30 points, to 17,460. 66. The Nasdaq up four tenths percent or 19 points to 47.31. Ten-year Treasury down two thirty seconds. The yield 1.85 percent. The yield on the two-year 0.89 percent. NYMEX crude oil up a tenth of a percent or five cents to 48.21 a barrel. COMEX gold is up four tenths percent or four dollars ninety cents to 12.59.70 an ounce. The euro a dollar 12.35. The yen won 10.30. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. Well, uh, it's something we don't want to face the possibility of, but the markets have, uh, to a certain extent, priced it, and that is the idea of another recession coming up sometime in the near future. What to do when monetary policy is all but impotent these days? Well, fiscal policy is the way to go, but can we get fiscal policy right? That's the subject of a new report put together by Princeton University economics professor Alan Blinder, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, so somebody with experience on the monetary policy side, and now giving advice on the fiscal side, looking at the uh, Alan uh, history of uh, fiscal efforts in the past, finding some things wanting and some things worked. You you have a now agenda that policymakers could follow of things that you say will help. Uh, I do. And I think the simplest way to summarize it is by looking very quickly at the main reasons why people have denigrated fiscal policy in the past and say, don't even think about that. Uh, And they are, in a nutshell, that it's too slow and too political. That won't sound unfamiliar to anybody. And there's some truth to it. So the, the basic kind of remedies that I'm pointing to in this paper are to try to do things that make the response more automatic. That'll make it faster, of course. That's tautological. If it's automatic, it's very fast. But also make it less political because it just happens, and you don't have to push legislation through Congress. What's the what's at the top of your list? I would put at the top uh, increasing food stamps and unemployment insurance. And why do I say that? Because those are two sorts of transfer programs whose recipients we know from evidence spend what they get very quickly. Uh, the food stamp people, we call it SNAP these days, but most of us still call it food stamps. Uh, the food stamps people are literally living hand to mouth and they spend it really fast. The people that receive unemployment benefits have lost their jobs maybe recently lost their jobs, and are sort of used to living at a higher living standard. And so both a priori reasoning and evidence suggest that they will spend quite a bit of it pretty fast. I would respectfully suggest, uh, Professor Blinder, that uh, 
people writing out tuition checks to Princeton are living food to hand to mouth uh, just as well. I don't even want to ask what tuition costs at your esteemed school. Uh, congratulations on your work. Is this a platform for uh, President Clinton the Younger? Is this is this an effort by the Hamilton Project to frame a fiscal platform for President Clinton? I'm not sure it's that specific. It is an effort by the Hamilton Project. That's why they asked me to engage in this to frame a fiscal program, as you say, not specifically for uh, President Clinton, though I certainly hope it will be uh, for President Clinton. And frankly, I see no reason on earth to think that Donald Trump would pay any attention to any of this. <laughs> the, the food stamps and uh and unemployment insurance you mentioned uh, are automatic stabilizers, so spending yes. in theory should go up. Uh, it does. What are you what are, what are you talking about in terms of uh, fiscal policy? Are you talking about immediately going to emergency extension of those programs? Yeah. So, well, on the UI, uh, on the unemployment insurance, to make it automatic, the the extensions that we generally get in recessions, we always get in recessions, uh, uh, come mostly from acts of Congress. Some of it's automatic, mm-hmm. but mostly comes from acts of Congress. So you could just speed that process up. The Obama administration has made a concrete proposal, and I couldn't give you chapter and verse right off the top of my head, but for a staged increase, staged increases in 13-week increments that would happen automatically. So that's a good... Uh, starting point for thinking about this, but it needs to be legislated. It's not in the law now. Similarly, on the food stamps, I would like to see mm-hmm. um, uh, increases, cyclical increases in the generosity of the food stamps. Give more money for, in the form of food stamps to the people but, that need it. Okay, but that is not the tone. That you know, The, the, the tone, are, is there going to be a 13th edition of your classic textbook? Uh, it, the, the answer is there'll be a 14th. So 13th is out right now. Excuse me. I, I'm sorry. I lose count. Go to, your, go to the store right. now. Buy I, it. I would suggest, Professor, that the, the politics of this nation and tone of our legislative branch is a little different versus the third edition and the 14th edition of Baumol Blinder. So with that said, is any of this feasible or is this just keeping you and, and your ilk at the Hamilton Project busy? I mean, can you get this through? If you ask me, can we get this through the current Congress, the answer is no. In fact, that's the same answer to anything. You can't get anything through the current Congress. I've sometimes joked, would Congress pass the Bill of Rights if it came up now? Which is why you are Ellen Blinder. That's yeah. just great. Mike, jump in here, but, please. But there will be another Congress. We are going to have an election in November. I think there's reasonable chance that the Democrats will win control of the Senate and a very, very outside chance that they'll win control of the House. I certainly wouldn't bet on that, but the the numbers should change. And in any case, the, we know from history, whether it's the Democrats or Republicans, if a president wins with a sweeping majority and a serious mandate, Congress pays attention. Um. This is going to sound like a stupid question, but um, the the objection is not always that it's too. I mean, the objection to fiscal policy from the intelligentsia is that it's too slow. The objection from the people in Washington is that you're spending money and you're running up the yeah. deficit. What do you say to people like that? What I say to people like that is it's sort of where you started the piece. 
that if the economy needs stimulus and it can't come from monetary mm. policy, or most of it can't come from monetary policy, which seems likely to be the case the next time, whenever the next time is, then it must come from fiscal policy. And that means increasing the deficit. But, and this is another important point that I emphasized in the paper, we ought to pay much more attention in designing fiscal packages to the so-called bang for the buck. Picks of things that relative to what they do to the deficit have a lot of spending punch behind them. And that's another yeah. thing that leads me to the things I was just speaking about. Alan Blinder with us. We're going to continue this conversation with the former vice chairman. And do it. We're honored to have Professor Blinder with us today. After the vice chairman, Stanley Fisher, spoke for Michael Woodford yesterday at a school to the north. What many people don't know is some of Michael Woodford's seminal work was done down the hallways of Blinder's Princeton. We'll talk to Alan Blinder about interest prices uh, and the lack of money as found uh, in Michael Woodford's work, as Stanley Fisher brilliantly highlighted yesterday. This is a real treat. Coming up, Alan Blinder on Michael Woodford. The Dow up 71 points, 17,507. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Volvo Cars White Plains. Visit volvocarswhiteplains.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Greece's defense minister says some of the airplane debris that's been spotted in the Mediterranean consists of two seats, suitcases, and a body part. The items were spotted the day after Egypt Air 804 plunged into the sea while on its way from Paris to Cairo. Egypt's president has expressed deep sadness and extreme regret over the deaths of the 66 people aboard. Donald Trump will speak today before the National Rifle Association's annual conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Former political organizer for the NRA, Richard Feldman, says Trump has been all over the map on the Second Amendment, but a lot of the NRA's membership is pro-Trump. Former Mexican President Vicente Fox says Donald Trump is creating enemies where they do not exist. Fox has butted heads with Trump's views, especially after the presumptive Republican presidential nominee proposed building a wall at the Mexican border and having Mexico pay for it. This guy seems to be looking for enemies under the stones and everywhere, looking for building this phantom and telling U.S. citizens, watch out. I need to build walls. I need to protect you. Who is he to protect this great nation? Back in February, when asked about Trump's wall comment, said, quote, I'm not going to pay for that blanking wall. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Mike Labar. Mike he, Tom? He, he didn't say blanking. Well, yeah, it was a lot stronger than that. <laughs> Michael Barr, choosing his words carefully. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. The Dow up 72 points. We're with Alan Blinder of Princeton University. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash in rented real estate. Find them at nria.net. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. 
And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Carbonite. You never know when disaster will strike your business. From spilled coffee to malware attacks, protect your digital files with secure automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Visit Carbonite.com today to get two free months with offer code BROADCAST. U.S. stocks are rising with the S&P 500 bouncing from a seven-week low, led by gains in commodity producers amid ebbing anxiety over the potential for higher interest rates as early as next month. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. The S&P 500 is up half percent or nine points to 2049. Dow Jones Industrial Average up four-tenths percent or 68 points to 17,503. The Nasdaq's up seven-tenths percent or 34 points to 47.46. Ten-year Treasury down 132nd, the yield 1.85%. Yield on the two-year, 0.88%. NYMEX crude oil up two-tenths percent or eight cents to 48.21 a barrel. COMEX gold up two-tenths percent or $2.60 to 12.57.60 an ounce. The euro, $1.1233, the yen won 10.39. Deere and company down 3% after the world's biggest farm equipment manufacturer lowered its fiscal four-year profit outlook. Foot Locker is down 6% after first quarter comparable store sales missed analyst estimates. And Applied Materials is up more than 13% after it forecast third quarter sales that may beat analyst estimates. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Moscow, thank you so very much. We are talking with Princeton University's Alan Blinder, former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, and we would be remiss, Alan, if we didn't ask you what you make of the uh, the Fed uh, seeming about face this week, uh, at least the markets are taking that way, in terms of when they're going to raise interest rates. Well, I think you you put it right. You hit the nail on the head. You said the markets are taking it this way. I don't think it was an about face. The Fed has long considered June uh, an open possibility, not foreclosed the possibility. The markets foreclosed it a long time ago. Now they've reopened it. Well, but I don't. I don't think it's much of a change on the part of the uh, Fed. Uh, Bill Dudley says if if the uh, data develop as his forecast suggests, then uh, he sees a June move. Do you expect the data to develop along those lines? I do, but I'm a little skeptical about the June move. You know, I think the markets have it maybe roughly right. I think the last time I looked, they were putting like a 30, 35% probability on a June move as opposed to negligible yeah. uh, some weeks ago. And the reason I say that, uh, even if the data come in the way Dudley and others are expecting it, is you've got the specter of the Brexit vote one week after the FOMC meeting. So I could imagine, I don't know that this will happen, but I can imagine an FOMC meeting where there's kind of a consensus to move up uh-huh. another 25 basis points, but there's a decision, let's just wait, see if the Brexit vote goes badly, and if it does, if that well, causes financial chaos. That talks about actual progress and data dependency, the phrase, let's just uh, wait. You had the privilege of working with Michael Woodford at Princeton before he escaped yeah. north to a small college yeah, in New York City. Uh, Vice Chairman Fisher's paper, folks, is my must-read of the weekend. It is exquisite along the monetary theory that Alan Blinder knows so well to Michael Woodford's iconic book. Within that is the idea that Michael Woodford's theory is still a theory that can be used. Is this Fed flying by the seat of its pants, unlike the Blinder Fed of years ago? No, I don't think so. I think when when you think of uh, two of the things, uh, 
Two of the things that we associate with Mike Woodford the most, there are many others, and a lot of it is very technical, way too technical yeah. for radio, even on Bloomberg. We do it on but, TV, but not radio. Euler functions. Yeah, that's right. You need to show TV. equations. But yeah. one, one of the things he emphasized, he, he didn't originate this idea, but he really emphasized it and made it dominant, helped make it dominant, is that what matters for monetary policy, what monetary policy is doing to the economy, is the difference between the interest rate and what is variously called the natural rate or the neutral right. rate. You hear this all the time, and this is become a central part of the Fed's thinking and of the market's thinking about the Fed, that where is the interest rate relative to the neutral rate. This idea, as you know, goes back to the 19th century to Vixel, but we went through a long time in the economics profession focusing on the money supply rather right. than the interest rate. But is that so Richard was was a principal person bringing the focus back to that? But is the orthodox theory of Blinder and Woodford, and for that matter, John Taylor of Stanford, still applicable given where negative rates are and such? Well, it, it's not for exactly the reason uh, that you said that this theory was never meant to apply to pushing the interest rate mm -hmm. down to zero. But let me put an important codicil to that. Please. This is a theory about the real interest rate. So it's the nominal interest rate minus the inflation rate. So we've now got that negative. Not as negative as it needs to be. So you can still think of the basic ideas that in, in the depressed economy, the equilibrium or natural or neutral, whatever name you want to use it, real interest rate was quite negative, and we couldn't get it negative enough. That's right. what leads to negative interest rates paid by the central bank, which I've advocated for a long time. Um, that's what also leads to suggestions like Paul Krugman made a long time ago about uh, promising to cause inflation in the future, right. which the Japanese are trying to do now. Yeah. This is all consistent with the kind of Woodford and even also Taylor right. framework. We have to leave it there. Alan Blinder, thank you so much. Most generous of you, Alan Blinder, the former vice chairman of the Fed and with Princeton uh, University. We now turn more, most importantly, to an imposing physical specimen, big and powerful. That would be David Papadopoulos, uh, a surveillance uh, bookie. You wrote in May about Outwork. I don't even know if Outwork's running in the, the Preakness this time around. Race do. What's going to happen? Well, race two is going to, for starters, I think they're going to get a lot of rain. Uh, a lot of rain forecast in the Baltimore area tomorrow, um, which could possibly set up well for a horse that I think has a shot at upsetting Nyquist, Mike McKee's Nyquist. I know Mike McKee is all <laughs> in on Nyquist. Uh, Exaggerator, who is a mud-loving fool and and uh, should hopefully they were, come. They were such a good well, band. Yeah, <laughs> mud-loving fools. <laughs> the bass player was Tom awesome. Sat in with them. Uh, it is an interesting theory that you write about, that uh, Nyquist, we don't know how Nyquist is going to react to the mud. And this is a different kind of race because it's going to be a speed race. you got a lot of uh, fast-breaking horses, although <laughs> interesting you put a lot of fast-breaking horses into the mud. But that's going to uh, either create some yeah. traffic yeah. for Nyquist and he's going to get mud in his eye. Or he's going to have to run out and try to keep up the pace. Yeah, it, it is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And there are any number of handicappers out there who who really don't make much of this whole 
notion of what's going to happen when a horse for the first time in his life runs behind other horses. I think they're all fools. I think it's like (laughs) if you talk to horsemen, it's enormously important. It doesn't come natural to a thoroughbred to run through the the storm, the cloud of of dirt and debris. Now, when you're running on a on a wet racetrack behind other horses, it's like the best comparison. It's like driving behind an eighteen wheeler in a downpour. Right, and it's just it, it, yeah. it's very daunting. What what do they have on their hoofs? Given the mud, I mean, the mud is not like an inch of mud; it's like four inches of mud. So they'll often do they have the plugs on their feet? Yeah, they're called mud cocks that they'll put on their. Uh, it's a special kind of shoe that they'll use on a track like this. That's essentially got a, a pair of teeth on them. Yeah, as I said, she's just really to help <laughs> cleats. Exactly. So at the end of the race, I mean, guys like you are totally focused on the opening, and I get all that when they ring the bell at the end of the race, and they go and they come to the fun, whatever the you down know, the, the stretch. Down What do you watch for given rain, mud, and all that? What's different now versus the Derby? Well, I just think in in the in the end, it's just uh, you know who's got who's got enough you know horse at the end. You know what we what really is is a better tell is around the turn, and you're watching your jockey, and and you're trying to figure out if your jockey's got horse or not. And if you've got if you're at a horse already, like Outwork was in the Derby, and I will pay you back that money you lost. I know uh, it's discouraging. The middle child, <laughs> um, but you're just hoping you still have horse at the top of the stretch. And then, as Kent Desormo, the rider on Exaggerator, once said, "Didn't you ask him for their life down the stretch, and you hope it works out?" <laughs> Exaggerator has lost four in a row to uh, tonight. <laughs> like this is the one. But here's, this here's, is the one. He's turning here's it around my, here's, my thing. here's the thing. Yeah. You say I'm a Nyquist fan, and I probably, if I you, you know, if I had to put money on it, would put money on it, even though I know the odds are, you know. He's also 100% of his portfolio is in treasury bonds, too. Yeah, exactly. But, no, I, I'm intrigued by Stradivari. Yeah. This horse has not yeah. run in the uh, – it did not run in the Derby. Hasn't run at all. I mean, just had uh, three yeah. races, but won twice by 11 and a quarter and 14 and a no, half lengths. This horse is the goods. I mean, this horse it's could be seriously horse. good. And, yeah. and, uh, and you got to wonder if maybe there's a surprise. If there no were doubt. a surprise, Absolutely. it would come from Stradivari. He, he's, he's really good. I just worry he might be too inexperienced, but he is a seriously good racehorse. Can you oh. give me a 15-second <clears throat> answer to this? You're going to bet Exaggerator, and you're also going to exact the Exaggerator, but why not just box it? Because if Nyquist wins, you can still collect some cash. Because there's just no value. I mean, I'm not going to play. I can't encourage that price. The, the odds on it, Nyquist you don't just offer Nyquist, but at least if you come up with the no, you you play that Exaggerator. This is Nyquist like Greek. Exact. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> This well, is like why Michael. That's so why you brought the Greek in to speak Greek. This is like Michael Woodford's Euler functions. David Papadopoulos, thank you so much. The Preakness, when is it? Saturday, Sunday? Saturday. Saturday. Thank you, David. It's been a wonderful week. Thanks to our team. We greatly appreciate it. What a bunch of interesting guests uh, today. We are produced, at least till the Preakness, by YUN. Ken Felio, under.